As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Torsten Slock of Apollo Global Management was on Williams R. Star. Torsten, I was absolutely thunderstruck by the responses. Kempmany out at 4%, Lee Farage in a three-handle, and even you going all unanchored on Williams and suggesting we go from this 2% nirvana up to something higher, under 3%, but something higher. How does our world change if we get a new interest rate regime out there somewhere? Well, I do think a very important implication is that then the cost of capital will be higher. The cost of capital will be higher for companies. The cost of borrowing for consumers will be higher. And all that will, of course, imply that we're going to have more of a significant impact, at least in the near term, on not only consumption, but also on corporate spending. Through price, do we see asset price reduction because they got yield up price down in a simplistic way? Yeah, because your equity risk premium model, if you change the risk-free rate, and you permanently increase that for whatever reason, demographics, energy transition, less immigration, whatever it might be. If you have the discount rate going up in any finance model on page one in your textbook would tell you that then risky assets are going to become less attractive relatively. This has been a fascinating week because we've seen the fastest pace of issuance this year when it comes to investment grade bonds, the third busiest post Labor Day couple of sessions going back to 2010. Companies are saying, okay, rates are going to be higher for longer. We're going to sell debt because you know what? We're going to have to just absorb these higher costs. Isn't this a positive sign that they're actually able to absorb these costs and able to access the credit markets and things keep going, even if at a more expensive rate? Well, I mean, broadly speaking, of course, September is mainly having a lot of issuance because the summer normally has relatively low levels of issuance. So first, there's a seasonal issue why issuance has been so high this week. But the other issue is also that, well, we're at the same time in the background seeing that the high yield default rate is actually moving up quite quickly in the last six months. We're now, at least on the Moody's default rate, we are at around 4%. And if we keep rates at these levels, you know every day on the Bloomberg Terminal, you see stories about their companies that cannot get a new loan, companies that cannot roll low on existing loan, in particular for lower rated companies with higher leverage, and especially when it comes to interest coverage ratios. Interest coverage ratios, which measure earnings divided by interest expense, 
is coming down both for IG quite quickly and also for high yield. So it is not the case that all firms just have locked in long duration of lending. It is the case that we are actually seeing interest coverage ratios going down both for the IG and high yield index. This is fascinating, the spike up that we're seeing in high yield defaults, albeit from really low rates and albeit True. still at historically low levels. When you parch, when you pass that out, or you basically model the next six months, the next six, uh, 12 months, do you end up with an acceleration of these defaults, or does it kind of plateau? Are we seeing the pain now as some of the rate hikes come into the market? Well, this is really important because so far, the soft landing argument is that it has been very orderly, the slowdown in the labor market. It's been very orderly, the slowdown in inflation. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that in the background, if you have this increase in default rates, especially in high yield, and remember the high yield industry basically has employment of roughly 11 million people in the economy, so it's not small. So the conclusion is if high yield default rates are going to continue to move higher because companies cannot get financing, well, then the effect will be that maybe at the moment these are names that many people tell me or we haven't heard about. Well, just wait until you get a default in a name that actually everyone has heard about. Then that industry, that rating, that type of interest coverage ratio, that type of leverage is going to be much more vulnerable. And that could change sentiment potentially quite quickly, in particular in high yield, but also in IG. And just across the board in terms of what kind of rate structure is going to be important going forward, as we were hearing uh, from Stephen Major of HSBC in particular, that catalyst event. From your vantage point, how does this play out? The bear case, is it some sort of deep recession? Is it some sort of uh, fissure in the credit markets? Or is this just a recession, the one that everyone was calling for earlier this year? So I do think that it will be a continuation of what we're seeing. The Fed, the ECB, they are stepping harder and harder on the brakes. And this is not just about the change in interest rates. This is about the level of interest rates. And as that process continues, if you're on your Bloomberg screen type ECFC Go, have a look at what non-farm payrolls are telling you about Q1 of next year. The consensus is expecting that non-farm payrolls in January and February and March will be 12,000. So you now lean back and say, well, if we're getting non-farm payrolls in six months, that will be close to zero for three months in a row. How do you think risk will trade on that? And if that process of slowing the economy down as a result of the Fed having right. raised the cost of capital continues, we should expect to see an ongoing slowdown ahead of us. And I do think that ultimately that will right. create a risk of a harder landing. In the last 18 months, coming out of COVID, with all the original economic framework that we have, the supply shock, et cetera, We've had so many things wrong. We got the recession wrong. We got before that transitory wrong. We got four other things wrong. The Red Sox, you know, we thought they'd, you know, have a good year. It didn't work out. And Harry Kane would never leave Tottenham. What right now that's a consensus call do you think we're going to sit back a year from now, 18 months, and go, God, we got that what I think is truly fascinating is that we did go into this year, all of us, expecting a sharper slowdown than what we saw. Yeah. And because of excess savings in the household sector, this just took a longer time. More people have been traveling on airplanes, staying at hotels, eating at restaurants. The service mm -hmm. sector, which makes up 80% of GDP, has just been a lot stronger. So it is a bit ironic that this process of slowing things down has continued. The Fed has kept on raising rates. Cost of capital continues to go up. The linkage rates for credit cards and auto loans continue to move higher. And just as all these things finally started appearing, everyone said, well, now we're not going to have more of a slowdown. Now it's just Goldilocks and we'll have a soft landing. So you think Goldilocks right now is the thing that we're getting wrong? It's, I do think that the okay. risk is that this process, remember, think about what the Fed is doing. The Fed is raising interest rates because they want us to spend less money on our credit cards. They want us to buy fewer cars. They want right. us to buy fewer homes. That's the whole idea. So we're slowing things down. Off of Jonathan Spence's classic work, in Orville Shell published, like, I believe it was in the Telegraph, I stand corrected if that's wrong, Orville Shell writing on China. 
What I'm getting out there right now basically is a death of China. All my radar's up, Torsten, and you wrote on it this morning. That is a major risk, and the Fed had a working paper a few years ago where they tried to quantify what is the impact on the U.S. of uh, correction in Chinese GDP, and they found a relatively modest impact that a 1% decline in GDP only had a 0.2%, in China had only 0.2% impact on the U.S., but this is now to be tested because China is not only slowing for cyclical reasons, meaning exports are going down because U.S. is slowing and Europe is slowing, they also have two other issues, namely the housing situation is getting more serious. And on top of that, they also have the demographic situation that's getting more serious. So all that combined is generally going to drag down GDP growth in China and also have implications in particular for Europe, but also for the US. But just one of the big uh, counterpoints to the bearish argument that you're making is that growth has surprised to the upside and it continues to, albeit at a slowing pace, and that companies are still doing well. How do you understand that surprising resilience? Yeah, well, the the nuance to that is that growth in employment has continued to slow down. And also when it comes to are companies really doing well, but why are default rates then going up so much? Why are interest coverage ratio going down so much? All these things that credit conditions are tightening in the background, interest rates are essentially, as the Fed wants it, biting harder and harder on consumers and biting harder and harder on corporates. And combining that with student loan repayments coming back, and also households running out of excess savings, at least according to the San Francisco Fed, you can't begin to worry about the next few months having a continuation of what the there Fed wants go. to see. That's a slocky and gloom. Well, but seeing the slowdown continue going ahead. What would you have to see to change your view? So what we need to see is essentially the cost of capital coming down, because the first domino brick in this process of the data that we're all watching across the board is that the Fed has raised the cost of capital. And as Tom was saying, maybe there are some reasons why the cost of capital might now be permanently higher. And the fact is that all this higher cost of capital is having an impact across the board, in particular consumers, corporates, but of course also (coughs) again on high yield default rates moving higher. Torsten Slack with this. It's great to have Steve Major with us with HSBC and to have Earl Davis with us today with a heritage with BMO Asset Management in Canada, Bank of Montreal. It's just great to have Earl with us. Earl, I love the pedigree. It's your fault the Toronto Maple Leafs are terrible. You were at Ontario Teachers for years. They used to own the Maple Leafs. They're the ones that buried them into obscurity. You've been on the investment side of debt and also, of course, working with BMO Asset Management right now. And your code here is longer. We are going to be longer, longer. How longer is longer for Errol, Errol Davis? Yeah, I think we'll be higher for longer for, uh, you know what, most likely until 2025. Um, I don't foresee any cuts uh, next year for two reasons. One is all central bankers are telling you that, and I think we have to believe them. The other thing is you see the economic numbers, right? The resilience, um, even though I know you guys were discussion, discussing uh, jobs and, and the decline there, but there's still excess demand for workers. It's still positive. So right. the question is not uh, whether things are declining, it's whether they're declining fast enough. And I believe some of the secondary um, data that we're getting is telling us no. And that means if they're not gonna hike too much more because they have to wait to see the cumulative effects of right. hikes, they have to hold on for longer. Cumulate us across 2024 to year 2025. How does fixed income react to a longer that most people aren't predicting like you are? Well, the, the, the interesting thing is we don't believe there's hikes next year. We believe there are hold next year. So what happens in that environment is that the longer end of the curve starts doing the fight against inflation. 
you know, and that comes through the market doing the fight against inflation. So there's two things that have to happen first. One is the market right now is discounting eases in the two-year bond all throughout next year. I think there's four or five eases discounted in the U.S. That has to be work itself out, and that means higher yields across the board. But we believe we'll have steepening before because people are scared of the UAW negotiations. What's the impact of that? Because let's say there is, you know, for argument's sake, a 25% increase in wages. That does not show itself immediately in inflation, but it will show itself in six months as car prices go up because your costs are going up. And this is happening across a number of industries. So we believe we are in that wage price spiral. We've seen a number of wage gains this year. You know, your pilots, we saw UPS, significant wage gains, which doesn't show up in inflation until people start paying and buying stuff with that increased income. So we believe we're in that spiral. That's why it'll be higher for longer. And uh, we don't foresee cuts until uh, 2025. At earliest, late Q4 2024, but uh, I don't anticipate that wow. at this point in time. We talk a lot about the long and variable lags, and there's a huge disagreement about whether they've already basically uh, Im impacted on the economy or if they are yet to come. Aside from just the Treasury market, when you take a look at credit, are you seeing companies being able to absorb some of the higher rates and all of the debt sales that we've seen over the past couple of days? Or is there something else going on that makes you think it's going to bite in a more material way? Well, they, they could easily absorb the, the debt uh, hikes from where they're refinancing. And the reason why is, let's look at U.S. 10-year bonds. Let's say a company issues U.S. corporate credit um, at, at uh, you know what, say 100 above, above overnight, uh, above 10-year yields. Um, they're still earning a positive return. <laughs> they're not paying because of the inversion of the yield curve and where overnight rates are. So it's not costing them as much as people think, especially the ones who issued last year or the year before and still have five, six, seven, eight years left on this debt. I think this is part of the story and part of the reason why we're seeing the resilience in the market that we're seeing, especially from corporates. There's no earnings recession. There's no uh, margin compression at this point in time. And that's something that has to change for inflation to come down as well. If you do have some sort of wage price spiral, are you saying, Earl, that we're on the cusp of a reacceleration of the U.S. economy that people are not foreseeing and that that slow sort of soft landing and decline is not an accurate portrayal? That's a great question. The answer is it depends. <laughs> and it depends on what the Fed and FOMC reaction to that is. You know, it's our belief it's going to be very difficult for them to hike in 2024 because of, of, of the election. And I know they're independent, but it does impact popular uh, opinion when politicians are talking about hiking, when things are turning. So it depends on the reaction function of the Fed. If the Fed chooses to counter that reacceleration, if it does happen, then no, we'll be all right. But if they choose to wait because of the cumulative effects and because of other reasons, then we could see some ongoing volatility in the bond market, especially that 10 to 30 year sector. Oh, that word, but. Can I pick up on that? They're independent, but. I've always struggled with that, Earl. They're either independent or they're not. There's no buts about it. Why is there always well, that I'll, but? I'll give you the but. Let me answer that question sure. for you. They are independent, but the politicians, Congress, Senate, they could change the mandate of the Fed in five years. So they're independent now, but the reaction function in five years in regards to the ongoing mandate, that, that's, that's subject to change. That's not permanent. Interesting. Oh, you think that might change then? I didn't say that. I'm but just I'd asking. Say that, that is in the cards. Um, okay. So that has to be taken into, into account. Let me look at it, rephrase it. I'm a fixed income trader. I look at net present value. 
So which means your cash flows over the next 10 years. When the FOMC makes a decision, they have to look at what's the impact, not just immediately, but next year, two years, three years, four years, five years. Part of that calculus is what I'm saying. And that's what you have to distill back to ensure that you have longevity in what you do. And that's how, how we kind of see the game theory of, uh, of um, monetary policy, fiscal policy. And, and, and that's how we put our risk on. We look at this and we incorporate that into our risk taking. That's fascinating. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the explanation. Oh, Davis there of BMO Asset Management. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm going to get right to it uh, right now. This is an important conversation. Pierre Farragut has been just brilliant and decidedly not an Apple fanboy. He is global technology infrastructure head at New Street Research. Pierre, I love your phrase, the Silicon Wall. I, I'm going to give you credit for that, the Farragut Silicon Wall. That's the tension this morning. Is there a Silicon Wall identifiable between America and China? Well, I don't think we, we see the wall yet because China is buying about 20, 25% of any, you know, Western tech company or any Western uh, semiconductor company. So, so, so there is still, uh, China is still a very big market. But what we see is that uh, both sides are working very, very actively at building up that wall with um, the US, you know, increasing restrictions, China doing their best to develop their own, their own supply chain. And you see like with Huawei this week uh, announcing like uh, their first, you know, high-end phone powered right. by a by a homegrown uh, uh, chip. These moves are very important and are setting the foundations for the world um, in some ways. And that's um, that's right. um, the way I would think about it. And you know, it took like a few centuries to build um, uh, the wall of China, and it's probably going to take um, a decade or two to to build the Silicon Wall um, as well. It's going to take a very long time right. for. China to be able to be more autonomous um, uh, and for, um, you know, the, um, the ability to, to replace right. uh, Western suppliers. Your, your note, Pierre, your note is extremely constructive on short term for Apple in China. What is the power, the sway that Tim Cook has over the Chinese government and over the Chinese manufacturing establishment? So let's... Um, yeah, I think you, you you raise a good point that you know China has to you know be very careful to what they do with uh, with Apple because China depends on Apple for for many things. They are 
even more important in, in the upstream of Apple than the downstream of Apple. That, that's a very good point. But even if you take a step back, you know, let's talk about Elon instead of uh, uh, talking about Tim and see what happened in 20, 2021. Um, China banned the use of Tesla cars for similar, like a similar scope of Chinese, Chinese officials, Chinese military, state-owned companies. And how is Tesla doing in China these days? Pretty well. So, you know, these bans, the direct impact of this bad is very, very, like, and to be honest, actually invisible. You, you don't even see it. Um, and so that's the reason why I'm a bit constructive on, on, on the situation. You're like, this ban is not going to affect Apple in the near term. Of course, it's a wake-up call for investors. They're like, oh, my God, like, this situation with China is not getting well. And I think the ban is one thing. The Huawei phone is another one. And it's not a coincidence that we see the two things popping up in the uh in the in the same way so so the way i see it whether it's tim cook or elon musk um these guys have a good ability to engage with chinese authorities understand the importance of china uh as a market china understands the importance of having them uh building factories leveraging uh the the chinese supply chain and so you know nobody is going to mess the apple cart uh in in the near term but in the longer run i think you have to keep in mind the Silicon wall is building up and slowly but surely China is going to get out of the mix of, um, of the revenues of an Apple, of a, of a Tesla, uh, of an Intel, of, um, of all Western technology. So at what point are you looking to see how much Tim Cook heads over to New Delhi, to Mumbai, to really have a discussion about expanding production in India? Yes. You know, exactly. Very similar, very slow moves. Uh, that are going to play out over years and years. So uh, it took China like a few years, you know, to to be able to put out a chip that could power a phone that could more or less, you know, compete with an iPhone, uh, but still like lag well uh, well behind. Uh, and uh, you know, like a revenge is a is a dish that is uh, better um, uh, that tastes better cold. And uh, now China is starting to. Uh, put up is putting up this phone and in a position to start like pushing back on the on the iPhone and Tim Cook and his team are very clearly you know cognizant of yeah. that and they, they are making sure they are lowering their dependency on China as well so that, that's a, that's a wall building slowly but surely I have to say this is a frustrating <clears throat> conversation to be having not because anything that you're saying is frustrating or or, uh, or or not incredibly interesting it's more just going forward that it feels like we have all these geopolitical headlines and then we have people coming on and predicting with really no basis of whether this is something meaningful or something this isn't how do you just deal with this? You just discount all of the geopolitical headlines as near-term noise and look at the fundamentals and say longer term, maybe, but we have to really wait and see. Yes. You know, Lisa, I wish I had started a hedge fund 24 months ago, just like buying the deep of every uh, geopolitical headlines. And, and I'm pretty sure I would have made a lot of money. The, <laughs> the, the China, the Silicon Wall, like the tensions between China and, uh, and the West, the way I like to frame it is the following. Let's say China is on average 20% of Western tech. Um, and let's say in a decade or two from now, in 15 years from now, China is out of the picture. That means Western tech is going to lose uh, barely a point of growth every year over the next 15 years. Uh, so yes, you can reflect that in your DCF valuation and things like that. And it's going to, to, to give you like a single digit, you know, 
headwind on your valuation if you're a fundamental investor. But at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. It's not, we are ready for that. And because the market is what it is, every time there is a piece of news, it's massively over, overreacting on something that is going to play out over 15 years. So yes, uh, I tend to see each of these uh, reaction as a buying opportunity. Pierre, I'm happy to look at opening that fund with you. Look forward to working together. <laughs> Pierre Fargo of New Street Research. Pierre, thank you, buddy. Always great to get your perspective. I'm pleased to say that my good friend on my side, Steve Major joins us right now, Global Head of Fixed Income Research at HSBC. Steve, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. We're going to park the football. We're going to talk about this bond market. You are bullish. What do you think the bears, Steve, have got wrong about the outlook for this bond market in America? Well, where to start? I, I think that the list is getting longer and longer. When I look at valuations, absolute and relative valuations, treasuries just stand out. We, we completed our, our monthly asset allocation this week, and uh, most of my colleagues have reined in their enthusiasm on other bond markets because they are not, they are not attractive. I mean, I'm struggling to find a single EM rates market that I'd want to buy right now. Uh, much of the total returns come through FX anyway. Credit is tight. Uh, treasuries are standing out versus equities. Um, but at some stage, people are going to start moving from bills into bonds because they're going to start thinking about the opportunity cost. Uh, so, I, I, look, I, I'll tell you that I think that yields today, okay, 10-year yields are 100 basis points higher than they were in the early summer, but they're the same level as they were in October 22. And since then, the Fed's hiked by 225 basis points. So, something's going on. To, to contain that 10-year yield. And I, th I think it's difficult to see it going much right. higher. So I, I look at it and think it's, it's asymmetric. Maybe nothing much happens. We go sideways for a bit. But when the yields right. move, they're going to move down and a lot. Stephen, you at HSBC are hardwired into the China slowdown, the knowledge of China, the dynamic of their GDP. If we do get some form of new diminished Chinese economic growth, is that a disinflationary impulse that assists in driving yields lower, fixed income prices up? Well, well, quite possibly, yes. It, it's it's not good for for many markets. I mean, the e EM tends to quite like a soft dollar and a strong China. It's got the opposite right now. So the channels through which China might matter to global fixed income are, are many. It could be through uh, capital flows, it could be through trade and therefore GDP, it could be through FX, it could be through some form of contagion, some kind of financial stability incident. I mean, there's so many, the, the, the list is long. And it seems that, that already there's some influence, but, but, but what kind of policymaker is ever gonna say um, what's really happening? We're gonna find out afterwards. So I, I think that the, uh, already you've got a big gap between the yield levels um, offered by China and many other uh, markets compared to the US. And that's the thing I'm focusing on at the, at the moment. It's very difficult to determine exactly what the channel and the process is going to be, but I think it matters. How do you understand, Steve, why we haven't seen yields go lower this year? Why they've stayed so sticky and persistently so with economic data surprising to the upside? Look, we've, we've just completed the most aggressive tightening 
phase in four decades, it looks like the momentum of the tightening is definitely fading. Um, and I, I think that we're, you know, we're entering a very important period here where there's probably going to be a handoff from the focus on inflation onto the real economy data. And, and it's going to be a slow process. But, but I, I, I think that, you know, I'll repeat what I just said. Yields probably go sideways for now. But when they make the next big move, it's very unlikely to be up. The next right. big move is more likely to be down. And therefore, you're better to be long. Are you saying that the risk right now is for some sort of systemic event and that you see one on the horizon versus the upside growth surprises that we have been seeing, which has led a lot of people to say that really the asymmetry goes to the other side, that growth could actually yeah. reignite? And I've heard that's even from Fed officials themselves. So the GDP now is a is a notoriously volatile series. It's been goosed up by the fiscal loosening. And, so, and the the trend GDP is still what 175, 180. Uh, the the smart people, I believe, recognise that the R star is unchanged from before the pandemic. So the policy rate is more than double what the equilibrium rate is going to be. So it says says to me that we are, we are at or right. or very close to the peak in the cycle. So given that, Steve, where do you? How do you? place an, a bet here out a year or two are you you know on a retail basis are you laddered do you barbell what's the yeah. major strategy that's, to go price yeah. up yield down yeah that's, that's now the key question I, I i've got much more comfortable with just outright long of 10 year plus rather than trying to wow. play anything fancy with the curve if you if you start buying twos versus tens and play a steepener you've got too much carry to overcome and so so the the, the strategy favors taking duration over yield curve exposure right. right now i can't say enough john how important that is to see a bullet approach from a major bank you don't see that nowadays everybody wants to do ballet fancy fancy cfa garbage and major just says shut up and buy it we're talking about treasuries here steve let's talk about that trade relative to what you expect to happen in the UK, in Europe. Is it a similar story, Steve, or is it different? Well, the UK might be leading things today, at least. It happens occasionally, doesn't it? Uh, I think uh, in the, you know, for every 100 days, maybe there's five to 10 days when the UK and the Eurozone can pull the US around. And uh, today might have been one of those. The front end of the UK got some life into it. Seems like the UK could be at the peak. The data is supporting that. Uh, so so you know, it's, all, it's all connected. I, I just think that, that at the moment, the relative value between treasuries and Boons and gilts and Aussie Canada, it favours treasuries. Just just run a, a, a spread series of, of the markets. And, and, and that's what's uh, struck me, is that it's a relative argument, not just an absolute one. Steve, final question, top four, West Ham. What does James Ward-Prowse have to do to get a call-up for the national team? H hasn't he been great? What a, what a joy. Uh, surely he must be on the list. But it's been a joy to watch. Just certainly. snubs by Southgate can continuously. I don't get it. You, I, I, I read the press on this, Henry Winder and all that, and I, you guys are vicious over there. I mean, we don't have this discussion. Oh, it's pretty here. brutal stuff, it's yeah. Brutal stuff, no, yeah. The, yeah, the tabloids. Nasty. The sports pages. Steve, thank you, sir, for yeah. the update on the bond market and a sneak peek of some of the football chat as well over in England. Steve Major of HSBC. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, working with Ian Bremer at Eurasia Group is Anna Ashton, Director of China Corporate Affairs, uh, on, of course, this relationship of U.S. and China. We need a brief this morning as well. And I'm going to cut to the chase. I see a lot of hysteria, and we've had some good voices calm us down a bit. Take us away from the immediate hysteria of China to clear thinking. How are you thinking clearly about the domestic challenges of China? Well, Tom, uh, it, it is quite a challenge to be the one who's supposed to come up with the with the positive take because, you know, China really is facing some serious economic hurdles right now, and they're different from hurdles in the past. Um, the slowdown is systemic. The real estate crisis is affecting lots of sectors. But at the same time, you know, it is important to remember that while China may be growing uh, at this present moment more slowly than the United States, uh, which is odd, and it's still growing. And it is an enormous country that is also growing in population uh, with a middle class that is set to grow. So uh, there's a ton of opportunity that remains. I think one of the issues that is kind of separate from the slowdown, but also um, makes it harder and harder for uh, foreign firms to do business successfully and has nothing to do actually with regulations either is just the fact that uh, there's more competition in the Chinese market from domestic companies than there used to be. If I look at the domestic companies, it comes back to the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, like the waves every eight years, we're going to de-emphasize them, we're going to re-emphasize them or that. What is the relationship of those state-owned enterprises now with the new Xi regime in Beijing? Well, definitely Xi Jinping is more of a, a state sector man. He has definitely moved away from his predecessors in re-emphasizing the role of the state and in his you know, pretty firm belief that the state needs to be involved in directing uh, which parts of Chinese econo- China's economy are going to be emphasized and are, and are supposed to grow. Uh, but, you know, interestingly, that seems to be the direction that U.S. politics is going to a lesser extent as well. Anna, we had Pierre Ferragou on earlier, and he was saying that he wants to start it, or he wished he had started a hedge fund to buy every dip in some of the names that are most affected by the geopolitical headlines, in particular about U.S. and China relationships uh, souring. Is this time different? On the one hand, I would agree with him. You know, how many times has there been a prediction that China was the coming collapse of China, um, that China had reached the end of its miracle of growth um, and development. But 
So I, I tend to err on the side of China will figure it out because there have been all of these times in the past when we thought it was different too. Uh, but there are some serious differences here. Uh, a big one is that there's really no way for China to try to come in and bail out the economy and, and rescue growth with a huge stimulus the way it has done in the past without reinflating the real estate bubble. And if they did come in with a stimulus, it wouldn't necessarily do what they truly need it to do, which is increase consumer and private sector confidence so that uh, there's more consumption. And that that really is a change. Do you also think, Anna, that there needs to be or that there will be more of a response from the U.S. in light of the fact that the new development in the Chinese phone was released during the Commerce Secretary's visit to China? Gina Raimondo is there. The timing very much trying to thumb the nose at the U.S. government and that there seems to be a much more direct tit for tat. There is definitely a much more direct tip for tat. And, you know, we've seen that play out in a number of different forums in the last few days. So there was Gina Raimondo's statement on Face the Nation about um, not necessarily wanting to apply the word trust to the relationship or improved trust after her visit, but saying, you know, we really need to see action. And there was, you know, sort of similar tone from Vice President Kamala Harris when she was at the ASEAN summit and the East Asia Summit talking about uh, the need for China to not, uh, not you know, pursue these gray zone activities in the South China Sea. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Well, thank you, and I greatly appreciate it. Too short a visit today. Let's do it again. Somehow we will with China. So much in the news. Anna Ashton with us with the Burmese Eurasia Group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.